Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, I've really been digging the playoffs, what I can what I can watch of them, you know, with all of the streaming stuff and the blackouts and, and just so many games going on. It, it's been hard to keep track of everything all at once, uh, but I'm really digging it. There's a really excellent Astros uh, Mariners game going on right now, game three that I have pulled up on my phone and I'm just peeking over every couple seconds. So uh, that's that's how I've been enjoying the postseason. Uh, how are you doing? How's your October going? And how are you digging the baseball so far? Um, October's going well. Um, I'm frankly focused more on my son's fall ball games than I have been the, the MLB playoffs, uh, but I have been uh, keeping an eye on them. And I have to say, Phillies. Hello, <laughs> what's going on, Philadelphia? Uh, good for them, because uh, that was a bit of a, a surprise and upset, but I always like to see that. And once again, proving that short baseball playoff series uh, can go either way, you know? <laughs> so um, you don't have to necessarily have the most wins in the regular season to do well in the, in the postseason. Yeah, and there, there's probably some sort of a joke in there about it being uh, it being more entertaining to watch your sons uh, play defense than, uh, than the Yankees <laughs> or, or I don't know if there's a joke there somewhere. Um, but yeah, the Phillies, I wonder if, you know, they, they seem like they kind of fall in that sweet spot of, of the nationals a few years back where you can just give enough of your innings to your five or six talented pitchers and not worry so much about the other ones and just let your few elite hitters take the load and, and get hot at the right time, get those clutch hits and make it work. It seems like they're kind of towing that line there. I don't know if their yeah. defense is quite up to that of the Nationals team a couple of years back. And uh, the, that bullpen has some question marks, but it's been fun to watch so far. Who who would have thunk that they'd be the last uh, NL East team standing after I know. this? I know, right? Well, you know, now granted, they played a lot of the year without Bryce Harper, so getting him back was a real jolt of energy for them. Obviously, he's helping them quite a bit, and sometimes that can kind of spread like a virus in a good way through the whole clubhouse. Like, okay, we got Bryce back. Okay, we're back in it, and everybody's on their toes now. So, you know, something like that may happen. I think the managerial change was significant, it seems, uh, to change the vibe in the clubhouse. And you've got these, you know, two great pitchers in Wheeler and Nola. Nola in particular has been super hot. So, um, and that can carry you, as we've seen in the past yeah they're certainly fun to watch it's you know it's the the expanded playoffs give and take you know it might be nice to might have been nice to watch the rays in a five game series and and the blue jays and and teams like that but it's also cool to see some of these new teams in here that we don't get you know both the mariners and phillies ending those playoff droughts uh, they're the clear team to root for if you don't really have any other allegiances they always want to root for the underdog and those are two great stories right there yeah, and I always think about like the rookie who in his first season makes it to the playoffs as if that's going to happen every year. You know, and we saw with like Mike Trout, it was I think it was his first or second year when the Angels, you know, went for, went, you know, into the playoffs and he hasn't been back since. So like, you know, don't get too adjusted to that Julio Rodriguez. I mean, hopefully in your case it will turn out to be different, but it's his first year in the playoffs and so like I'm sure he's having a blast. Exactly. Yeah. Not not quite as much of a blast as Spencer Strider had in his yeah. playoff <laughs> debut, but look at that segue. Uh, the, the, the Braves and Spencer Strider, even though they had their early playoff exit, uh, actually just today knocked out by the Phillies, uh, they have plenty to be happy about. I, I'd say, you know, I, I was thinking about it earlier. If any team 
was in a position to not be too disappointed by an early bump from the playoffs, it's the Braves because they obviously they won the World Series last year. So they're still kind of riding that high and they just have such a bright future to look forward to. So many good things happen for them this season on and off the field. And it looks like they have all of their best young players locked up for a very long time. And, and Strider is the last piece of that. So they announced, uh, I believe it was before their postseason series began, uh, before the NLDS began. They announced a six-year, $75 million contract extension for Strider uh, with a club option for a seventh year. And so it ends up uh, buying out just one free agent year with that club option. Oh, excuse me, two free agent years with that club option. Uh, but it's it's one of these cases that we, we keep saying them pull off with with Harris. And uh, was there another young young guy that they locked up similarly? Um, I know they've been locking up Olsen and, and just everybody who everybody with a pulse on that team is going to be yeah. there for a while. Yeah. Um, it, it, the list is really impressive. And, and just looking at kind of their roster resource page, they already have Albies and Acuna locked up. Riley, they locked up this season. It's it's an impressive core. It's tough to beat around the league of, of that kind of cost control for those caliber of players. And Strider was really, I don't, I don't want to say he's the last one there. You know, Von Grissom looked pretty impressive in his debut. And there's probably a couple more guys coming through the farm. Maybe Ian Anderson figures it out. Kyle Wright could be a guy, Max Free. There's still some other pieces there, but he was kind of the next obvious one of like, okay, when's that one going to happen? And they did it, and it's it's fun. He's been incredible this season. Like I said, not the playoff debut he wanted, but just an impressive season all around. Might be the might be the rookie of the year. If it's not him, it's it's Harris. Yep. And yeah, they got pretty much pretty much what we would expect on this one, right? Uh, it, we tweeted out from the Baseball Values account. Braves' new deal with Spencer Strider increases his surplus value a bit, from $78 million to $92.1 million based on our modeling. Even after adjusting for risk, it's yet another example of Atlanta locking in talent at below market prices. And that, that just seems to be the case. And you figure maybe Strider is the type of guy who's a little bit more encouraged to, uh, to snag that deal and be okay taking a few million less and locking that, kind of in, that, that in just because he's a pitcher and he throws hundred miles an hour and that's kind of scary. It could take, you know, one blip yeah. and he's, he's cooked. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it seems just like a, like a good deal for both ends here. And I don't know if I have much more to add, so I'll, yeah. I'll shut up and let you talk. <laughs> yeah. So, so obviously the Braves have been uh, kind of at the forefront of locking up their young talent. Alex Anthopoulos has been, you know, prioritizing it. And, you know, I think the league is impressed that he's, that he keeps doing this and, you know, and I think it's a good thing because he, you know, he understands that, you know, a young player who's already sort of established that they they can play at this league at a high level is worth a lot of money. And um, to get them, so to lock them up early means the team gets an effective discount, particularly with, you know, most players pick a uh, peak around age 26, 27. If you can get them before that age then you got like the rising sort of appreciating asset in business terms, as opposed to a depreciating asset if you if you sign a free agent in their 30s, where they're going to go downhill. Here, they're going uphill, right? So you've got a talented young player. And oh, by the way, they tend not to get hurt as much because they're young and healthy and not as much wear and tear on them. So it's a really good, from a business front office perspective, it's a really good investment. And because they're so far away from free agency, you know, it's a win-win for both sides because, you know, the, the player gets cost certainty now. They don't have to go through arbitration or anything else. They're like, they're set. And that's a lot more money than they might have envisioned making with, and they've also taken away the risk. Like if they get injured, they're still getting paid. 
Um, so they're getting a good side of the deal and the team's getting an under market uh, side of the deal. So everybody wins. And I think the, the league is looking at these types of deals. You know, Julio Rodriguez, you know, Tatis, other teams have been starting to do it with their young superstars. But the Braves are kind of going to, you know, another level saying, well, OK, not just the superstars, not just Acuna. We're going to go, you know, Riley and Harris, like the other guys. You know, I'm not saying these guys can't be superstars, but they haven't really quite gotten there yet. They may still in time. Uh, but Strider is another one. But when you look at the year that Strider has had, um, you can understand even more why. He put up uh, 4.9 F4. And this, by the way, he didn't start the year out of the gate, out of spring, uh, spring training. He came up, I think, in May as a reliever. And he still managed to put up almost five war. And then they converted him to a starter. And he was still putting up insane numbers. If you look at his K rate minus his walk rate, you know, he's got a 38.3% K rate and only an 85% walk rate. So that differential, a lot of front offices use, look at that. So that's 29.7% difference between his K and his BB. And that is impressive. A lot of guys don't get that high. And maybe you think, okay, well, as a reliever, he was just coming in in the late innings and shutting people down, and maybe that was skewed. But he did it as a starter, too, in 20 starts. He kept that up. He has a 1.883 FIP. And this is out of the gate as a rookie, as a 23-year-old. So now he may not put up this kind of season again, but obviously the Braves know him and know him well. And he, you know, I know he had a little bit of an oblique injury. Um, so there's always a little bit more injury risk locking up a pitcher for a long time. But they seem to be very confident that even if you bake in some risks, you know, as I tweeted out, there's still a lot of upside there and a lot of surplus value there. So they're going to get a really good deal. Yeah, I follow a few Braves fans on Twitter, and uh, they, they've been comping in the last couple months to Jacob deGrom. And I'm not going that far. You know, it's still very early <laughs> into his career. It's 100 and something innings. What is it? I think it was like 130, 131 innings. So I'm not I'm not getting there quite yet, but that is kind of the caliber of season he just had, you know, it, just elite, untouchable. And, you know, if he stays that guy and stays healthy, then, you know, the last two years of this deal that cover his uh, free agent years, those are at 22 million each. That's a bargain. That's a steal. Jacob DeGrom might get double that in his next contract per year. Um. But that's that's a massive if of saying if this guy continues to pitch like yeah. one of the best pitchers in baseball, then, yeah, it's a bargain on the flip side of it. Like I mentioned before, he throws hard. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't always a can't miss prospect. He, as you mentioned, came up in the bullpen and they really didn't expect him to contribute in this way. And so if he even takes a bit of a step back or, or deals with the injury bug, his command falls off a little bit, you know, there's so much safety here for him. So. It's like we've discussed before. It, there's some there's some risk on both ends, some some give and some take for both sides here. Uh, but it seems like they kind of met met in that comfortable spot in the middle where they're both happy with it. This isn't a like the Aldi's extension where you can see from the first second, wow, this is a steal. You just got hosed. Fire your agent. This is nowhere yeah. near that. This right. is no. the usual bargain you can get. If you're if you're the team locking up a guy so young, you can get a bargain because you're also taking on some risk, and that's all this is. Yeah, I mean he's making twenty-ish million in his what fourth or fifth years, what would have been his arbitration year. So that's not comparable to the seven million that Ozzy Albies is making. So there's you know his agent did a good job of making sure he got paid. 
you know, given the risks and everything else. One final comment I will say, as we've talked about in the past with our young players, we use a kind of a sliding time scale. So that surplus value that we mentioned is factoring in that time scale. In other words, we're still saying, okay, he's still young, he's still a rookie, and he hasn't quite proved himself yet. So his major league numbers are blending with his prospect numbers. So it's possible that if you just look at the major league numbers, they're even higher. But we're regressing for that because he's still not totally proven yet. He hasn't really, he hasn't been through the mill for two years yet. So we're discounting for that. So in effect, there's still a lot of surplus value even after discounting for that, which is saying something. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to cut in with a quick update from that uh, Astros Mariners game. The two teams were tied in the top of the ninth and the Astros got runners on second and third with one out. Rookie Matt Brash came in and struck out Christian Vasquez and Jose Altuve to get out of it. And now the Mariners are threatening in the bottom of the ninth. A Suarez single, a, a ground out, and then Mitch Hanniger just got hit by a pitch. So it's, uh, I bet it's pretty loud at, at T-Mobile. T-Mobile now? Yeah, not Safeco anymore. I bet it's pretty loud yeah. at T-Mobile Park right now. Good game. Okay, moving on to the next bits of news here. Uh, the qualifying offer has been set at $19.65 million for the upcoming offseason. Uh, these typically trend upward. It's, it's, I believe it's an average of the highest paid players. Yeah, it looks like it's average of the salaries of the 125 highest paid players in baseball. And as a reminder, the qualifying offer, um, as of the new CBA, or actually it might have been from the previous CBA, uh, but you can only be extended the qualifying offer one time as a player once you've either accepted it or rejected it uh, you're done and next time you hit free agency you can't be offered it anymore and there are draft pick penalties to this team that signs you uh, if you have rejected the qualifying offer and uh, the team that lost you gets a draft pick and it's all a complicated system depends on where you are and revenue sharing and how much you signed for and all that junk uh, but basically it's it's extended to the highest caliber free agents uh, in order to give their team some sort of compensation for losing them if they do. So uh, typically trends up. It took a bit of a step back last year because of some of the salaries being kind of, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Being kind of brought down, dragged down by, depleted, deflated by uh, COVID and the impact there. Uh, but it's coming right back up, 19.65 highest ever. And it doesn't look like a particularly strong class of guys who could receive the qualifying offer. Uh, we can go ahead and, and run down a list here. I have the uh, roster resource free agent tracker for the 2023 season. This is from Fangraphs, um, and it's sorted by 2022 wins above replacement. So we can just kind of go down the line here. Uh, starting with Aaron Judge, duh. <laughs> it's his first time in the free agency, so he's eligible for it. And of course, he's going to be offered it, and of course, he's going to decline it. Uh, Dansby Swanson and Trey Turner, those are also just locks to be offered it and decline it as well. Those guys were excellent, as usual, this past season. Uh, we get into some kind of interesting territory. Brandon Nimmo was worth 5.4 wins. Um, he'll likely be offered it, and he, I, I would guess he would decline as well and be looking yeah. for a longer-term deal, but we're at least starting to get into that kind of gray area. Yeah. No, I I think you can get more than that, so I think they'll, yeah. they'll pass on it. Uh, Tyler Anderson is interesting. He was worth four wins last year. Uh, and, and the Dodgers have some questions to answer in their pitching staff going forward. So I'm I'm intrigued there. What do so you think? the Dodgers surprised people a couple of years ago when they offered uh, a QO to Hunjin Ryu. And on paper, we were a little bit as well. And so 
you know, at the paper we on paper at that time when we were looking at it, he was worth about thirteen, fourteen, and the qualifying offer was eighteen, so they were a little bit under. But you know, it's kind of a sliding scale thing again, where you're like, if you're close enough, it might be worth it. If the Dodgers or any team thinks you're you're you know valuable to them on the field, they might say, yeah, it's worth it. And he took it because it was a little bit more than he thought um, he would get, probably. So yeah, there there will be cases like that where on paper they might be a little under the 19, but the team might feel like, yeah, it's worth the risk. If the player thinks, you know, I, I'll take it. Um, so, um, you know, I think there there might be a couple of cases like that this year. Um, so, so we'll see. Yeah, and it also goes to our values being, you know, the median for, for all of these players. We're not going on a team-by-team -team basis. $20 million, you know, 19.6, whatever it is this year, to the Dodgers is not the same as $20 million to the A's. You know, so yeah, if a and, guy and... is right on the line for the A's, they might lean toward no. That's why you saw them not extend the qualifying offer to Marcus Simeon and Liam Hendricks a few years ago versus the Dodgers have the flexibility most years to give it a little bit of wiggle and say, yeah, it might be a bit of an overpay, but we're going to bring you back because we like you. We want the production. It's just a one-year deal anyway. Yeah. It, like As with Ryu, I could see them maybe doing that with Anderson. They they, they seem to like him. They seem to have unlocked something because he was kind of a journeyman. He was like a, you know, at best a solid starter, at worst a back-end starter, you know, not really in the top class. Um and he's improved a bit, obviously, with a four-war season with L.A. They figured something out with him. So he might just take it because he likes playing with the Dodgers. And, you know, if you look at his career total, you know, some teams might look at that as kind of an outlier year. So, you know, he might not get a better deal. So that could be one of those cases. Yeah, definitely could see that. Um, next on the list, Jose Quintana. He was traded at the deadline, so he's not eligible. Jose Abreu, I believe, was already extended the qualifying offer previously and might not be eligible. Don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> okay. But that, seem, that seems like a candidate where he could be offered and accept, right? Just because he's been a, a White Sox lifer. I know they have some kind of turmoil there. There's some clubhouse questions. I've seen from some White Sox fans on Twitter that they that he might be kind of I don't I don't want to say he's a clubhouse problem but if they need to kind of revamp the culture there maybe they move on from him I don't know kind of speculative uh, uh we'd have to kind of wait and see on that I guess I mean we'll have to wait on seeing all of these but yeah I mean <laughs> on, paper, case. on paper I don't think it makes as much sense and also you know they've been playing Greg Vaughn out of position in right field where he's been god awful so like they could really use him to play first base you know they do tend to have a surplus of these sort of corner statue-esque guys who just play first base DH types, Gavin Sheets and, you know, um, Jake Berger in addition to Vaughn. Like, there's something's got to give there, I think. They can't just keep running these guys out. So, uh, Abreu, who's the older one, and even though the White Sox obviously liked him because they extended him a couple of years ago, this may be a different time. You know, John, I, I know the White Sox have been kind of zigging while everyone else zags, and, you know, they got some heat for hiring old Tony Larusa, but I don't think they're running 57-year-old Greg Vaughn out there in the outfield. You're thinking of Andy. Did I say Greg Vaughn? <laughs> yes, you oh did. My God. <laughs> Thanks for catching me on that. Oh, my God. Okay. Andrew Vaughn. Thank you. Yes. Um, next up, Martin Perez. I don't think he's a qualifying offer guy, but there's been a lot of talk about the Rangers uh, talking to him, maybe bringing him back, and that seems... I don't want to say likely, but it, it's they didn't move him at the deadline clearly because they want to hang on to him. They like what he yeah. does for their staff. Um, yeah. Clayton Kershaw, I don't remember if he's been offered it already. Um, I want to say yes, but I have to double check. Yeah, likewise. 
John, did you know Elvis Andrews was worth 3.5 wins above replacement last year? No, I did not, Josh. I was am worth, a little bit surprised. He was worth two wins for the White Sox in 43 games. He hit 271, 309, 464, 119 WRC+. Plus. Well, go Elvis. Everyone thought yeah. he was done, right? Yeah, Looked Elvis hasn't him. left the building. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I Again, don't think anybody's going to give him a qualifying offer, but I do, you right. know, good for him. He's, right. he's not eligible because he changed teams as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, Wilson Contreras, though, is the big kind of question mm-hmm. mark here. Uh, he he's kind of on the edge there. I I think if you just look at the numbers, it, it's it says no. Um, but he seems like a guy whose reputation is better than his numbers, and the Cubs really love him. They didn't trade him, obviously, and I think they've already publicly stated that they're probably going to offer it to him. Yeah, and in his case, he's more offense than defense as a catcher so you might think well that could knock his value down a bit because maybe he's more like a dh rather than a catcher going forward um you know and dhs aren't worth as much as catchers you know guys who don't play defense well generally are not worth as much as two-way players who do you know so um that's a borderline case but to your point i think the cubs did say they're going to offer to him he probably will decline it he's probably itching to explore other pastures and and so the Cubs are probably thinking, okay, we'll get a draft pick out of it. Yeah, I, I'm intrigued to see how that could impact his market, though. Uh, especially, you know, there might be yeah. there might be a catcher on on the block if if they look to move Sean Murphy next, and yeah. teams might rather go get him for cheaper and younger than give up a pick and pay Contreras while it seems like he might be in decline. So. I'll be interested to see where that goes. Um, I think we're pretty much at the end of the line here. Ross Stripling isn't getting one. Corey Kluber isn't getting one from the right. Rays. Yeah. Um, I guess the last two names that are kind of interesting are Edwin Diaz, because he was just so incredible this last year. And honestly, he's been so incredible for most of his career. He just had kind of a weird blip there when he yeah. got to New York. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was worth three wins last year, and that's a little bit unheard of for a reliever. He's going to be trying to set some records uh, as far as relievers go. And the Mets have a lot of questions. We'll talk about them more later in the episode. But they... but, if, but if you think about elite relievers, I mean, the AAV was in, I think, 18, 19. Like Kenley Jansen's got 18, I think. Um, so you're not far off with a $19 million qualifying offer for Diaz. I think he, they the Mets at least offer it to him. I think he says no, but I think they offer it to him. And so at least they get a draft pick back. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm looking it up right now. What Aroldis Chapman's deal with the Yankees paid him? I want to say it was like five years, 80 million. Yeah. Um, uh, looks like three years, 48. Where did I get five years, 80 million? So it was a 16 million dollar AAV. But um, you know, the elites are in the 18 ish range. Mm-hmm. So, and he's obviously had a fantastic year and has been elite for a while. So I can easily see him being worth 19 on the open yeah. market more over multiple years. So mm-hmm. I Plus can see him getting, a, and, yeah. I yeah. mean, I think somebody might offer him five years at a hundred total. Um, so I think he probably says no, but I think the Mets probably give it, give him the qualifying offer. Yeah. I think I'm with you there. And then the last name I just wanted to pull out of here was Adam Wainwright, who was very good last year as a, as a what? 42 year old now, 41, <laughs> yeah. uh, 2.8 wins. Not bad, Adam. Um, I don't think we've gotten any official word yet on whether he's going to retire or not. Uh, he seems kind of wishy-washy on it. I don't know if he's decided even. Yeah. Um, but I think it's more likely more likely than a qualifying offer, especially while it is questionable right now, and the deadline to submit those qualifying offers is like a week or two after the World Series. So 
I think more likely right now is they wait it out, uh, maybe kind of handle it the way they did with uh, with Molina and Pools, where they kind of waited, signed them a little bit later in the off season. Uh, to I think Molina got did he get like ten million something yeah, like that? It was did. it was yeah. we had it as an overpay and it he was. wasn't that great yeah. on the field this year, so it kind of ended up being that. But whatever, throw an extra million to the guy, he's your franchise player or whatever. Right. Um, seems like that's probably a more likely outcome from Wayne yeah, than the I qualifying agree. offer. Yeah, I can't imagine him continuing to pitch and doing so for any other team, right? Yeah, and they know that as well. So there's some some kind of leverage there. So yeah, yeah. Um. So I'm not seeing on this list. Um, I might just be blind. <laughs> Am I missing this? Is Chris Bassett? Chris Bassett is a pending free agent, correct? Yeah, and he's a borderline. Oh, it's because life. okay, okay. So this list, sorry, uh, this list doesn't include uh, players with options, and I believe Chris Bassett has a weird mutual option for next year that he isn't going to. Yeah. Uh, except so th- that's where he falls in there. Gotcha. Yeah. Now I, I think he's right on that line. Uh... Yeah, I mean, if they give him a, a, a QL, he might actually take it because he hasn't made that kind of money on an AV basis, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Um, and he's getting older. You know, he's, what, 34 or so. Uh, so, but I don't know. It's it's a borderline call. And that reminds me, this is absolutely an incomplete list because of stuff like that because we're also missing DeGrom on here. Obvious, obvious QO there, but he has an opt out in his contract, and that's why he isn't listed here. Uh, yeah, and I think if, I think JD Martinez might also be in that category. Yeah, I think he might have already re- no because he was traded before he signed his free agent yeah. deal, so he wouldn't uh, have already received one. But I don't; he's not at the level where he would these days anyway. Yeah. Well, anywho, uh, that's just kind of a rundown of it. There, uh, we might maybe we'll take a closer look at it once we get a little bit closer to that deadline. Um, and, and put something out about it. But that's how it's looking right now. A um, few other quick hits of news. Carlos Correa has kind of uh, signaled, has kind of implied that he's going to be opting out of his deal with the Twins. Not a huge surprise there. Um, on the surface, it was a bit of a disappointing year for Correa, but kind of had some peaks and valleys, and he finished the season red hot. Um, he ended up 4.4 wins above replacement. That'll play. <laughs> in In less than a full season, he missed some time due to injury. So all of his numbers pretty much across the board look the way you would expect them to. Uh, Just didn't play as many games. Maybe his defense took a little bit of a step back, but he's still Carlos Correa, and he's still going to be hunting for that big contract that he couldn't quite get last offseason, and he's going to hope he has a chance for it this season. Um, Yeah. He seems like he really enjoys Minnesota, and it seems seems kind of genuine. You know, everybody always says when they're hitting free agency, oh, I'd love to stay here if the price is right, and he's been... He's been pretty blunt that the price will need to be right. I don't think he's taking any kind of hometown discount there. Uh, but I'd at least keep an eye on it. I think it's a possibility in a way that maybe didn't seem that likely um, when he signed the initial deal with the Twins. It seemed pretty likely that, yep, this is just a one-year thing no matter what, unless he gets catastrophically injured and, and opts back in for the next two years. Yeah. But I, I think he's got a shot. So... From the teams, from the league's perspective, the, the main knock on Correa is he's, he hasn't been able to stay healthy, right? So they don't want to back up the truck for a guy who might be injured, you know, in multiple, in, in pieces and parts of years. You know, they want a guy who's durable. So when Corey Seager signed his, his big deal, like, you know, outside of that Tommy John surgery a few years back, he's been very durable and, and very steady, 
Same with Lindor and his big contract. But Correa has been sort of off the field, on the field. He can't seem to stay healthy. And so that's been the big sort of knock on him. That's that's from the team's perspective. From Correa's perspective, though, he's still on the young side, and he wants that big payday. He wants that Seager or Lindor kind of payday. And he took what he could get from the Twins as a, kind of a stopgap. But, yeah, I think he sees, like, come on, now is my chance to get the big payday. I want that 10-year contract. And so who's going to pony up? So I think that's where he's at. Um, on paper, he's worth more than the Twins are paying him. So I, you know, I, I think that was a, a good call. I want to say also there was a video floating around Twitter of him appearing on MLB Network, uh, which was fascinating uh, because a side, a side of him that maybe not everyone realizes, like he was explaining, like, here's what front offices see. And he was talking about control of strike zone, taking a walk, you know, don't swing at those marginal pitches, do damage on the ones inside. And everyone's laughing. I'm going, oh, okay. He was talking about like WRC plus and, you know, WOBA and like the advanced stats. Like it's not about average and home runs. And like he was trying to educate the general public as well as his favorite player is his fellow players. And so what that shows is he really gets it. He really gets analytics and he really gets kind of what, what front offices are looking for in terms of like being a complete hitter. And I think that's going to play in his favor to a bit as well. Yeah, he's very analytically inclined, and he's been somewhat vocal about that for a few years. And actually, there was a story at the deadline that he uh, had some input on the Twins' deadline decisions, which is kind of surprising. You, you, I mean, you hear about that every now and then, especially if you got like a franchise player there, and and or or maybe a guy who's played with some of these guys before. But apparently, he was having pretty open conversations with uh, Derek Falvey, I believe. Um, is that his name? um yeah who runs yeah who runs things in minnesota they were having pretty open conversations around the trade deadline and and he was actually giving them input and you don't usually hear that for kind of hired help (laughs) the the way he was you know just kind of the big star you brought in on a short-term deal um so you wonder you know there's a relationship there there's kind of that extra off the field I'm, i'm not saying that it's incredibly valuable to have just another guy's opinions because uh, as smart as he is he is primarily a baseball player i'm not saying that he lets you replace some front office analyst because he can do that job too N- not saying that at all but i wonder if there's just something there and, and maybe he can be a leader in the clubhouse and help yeah kind I of think... explain these concepts to some of the other players who aren't quite as in tune with it and there's some value to that that maybe encourages a team to to pay a few extra bucks for him exactly and that's what the point i'm trying to make and uh is that you know, by showing that he gets it, you know, he sees it from the same perspective as the front offices do. I do think that's a plus for him. And, you know, because they can work with him and a lot of them want players who understand analytics, who understand like, you know, there's even the basics of, you know, defensive positioning that varies from player to player and situation to situation in the count. Like he gets all that, right? So that is an asset. And, and then to further sort of help explain that in the clubhouse kind of helps the manager and the coaches. So, he becomes like an extra coach on the field. So that's a plus for for his his career uh, uh, opportunities, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one last kind of topic I want to bring up for him is just kind of his competition on the free agent market. There's, once again, it's a, it's a pretty decent shortstop market. There's Correa, Trey Turner, and Dansby Swanson. And, you know, if, it, if they had, things had played out a little bit differently in 2022, I'd feel a lot more comfortable making this argument. But I think you can make the argument that teams might look at Correa as the best two-way player of those three, you know, the best offensive and defensive. 
Um, the reason I'm saying this year made things weird is that Trey Turner played, I don't, I don't want to say he didn't play great defense, but he was 56th percentile by outs above average uh, baseball savant. And Correa, who was typically a fantastic defender, I believe he won the Platinum Glove last year. He was down in like the 20th percentile or something. He had a rough defensive season for some reason, and it's hard to explain why. Uh, 18th percentile, wow. But this kind of blip of a year aside, I think there's probably a perception that Correa's a safer shortstop than Turner long-term. Uh, Turner's fantastic, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to have this as a knock on him at all. But maybe Correa's a safer bet to stay at shortstop a little longer. And then you look at Swanson, who's a great defensive shortstop, and I think that's kind of his calling card, but the bat's a bit more of a question. And so maybe Carlos Correa is kind of the in-between of those two, where you feel a little bit better about his bat than you do about Swanson, and you feel a bit better about his glove than you do about Turner. And I don't know, maybe some teams will will prioritize that a little bit. This is this is a stretch. Yeah. This is a maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I do think of those guys, uh, Correa has the most power as well typically you know and that matters uh trey turner has seen more of a sort of a leadoff contact kind of guy i mean he does hit a few home runs here and there but it's mostly because he has a quick bat and he can hit velocity here and there and it'll go over but he's not like a superpower guy um he's known for his speed and his base running and his overall baseball iq you know so um i don't know um i see him as a pretty strong defensive shortstop i mean i know your 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 point about uh oaa but um, you know, I think defense, I mean, year to year, they, those numbers can be volatile. And I think we were still sort of as an industry struggling with kind of what, you know, how to, how to, how to measure defense. Cause I don't think anyone, any particular number has sort of set in stone yet. And some of those numbers do jump around from year to year. So, which makes you wonder, like, what is the overall picture telling us here? So, I mean, the eye test would say, yeah, Trey Turner is a really good shortstop defensively. Um, you know, Correa obviously has that going on dance. Business. So I think it's all kind of, I think they're all there. They check that box defensively. Correa has more power. Uh, Turner has more contact and stay health, stays healthier. You know, Dansby had, had a breakout year this year offensively in his walk year, which is good timing for him. Um, he hadn't shown as much of that before, so I think there may be, to your point, some still questions about that. So I think that's kind of how it's playing out. Yep, I agree. All right, moving on to some more news. Uh, two bits of international news, actually. Uh, just quick hits here. Uh, the Hanshin Tigers of the Nippon Professional Baseball League are going to post Shintaro Fujinami, who's a right-handed pitcher. Um not a big name, not one I had honestly heard before I saw this pop up in my timeline, uh, but he's going to be turning 29, and it seems like he's had kind of an up-and-down career in Japan. Uh, he actually spent some time in the minors the last couple seasons. He was previously like a can't-miss prospect and, and maybe, I don't want to say flamed out, but he lost some of that shine. Uh, but he had a pretty good season when he was in the big leagues this year, and it seems like he throws hard, has some command questions. Not a guy that I'm... You know, everybody's got to keep their eyes on next Otani, anything like that. Uh, but kind of guy where maybe there's something there. And if the Astros or the Rays or the Dodgers sign him, I am absolutely going to be keeping an eye on that. Um, and, and then the second one is Kodai Senga, another right-handed pitcher. He'll be opting out of his contract uh, with the Fuku, Fukuoka. Yeah, Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks. Um, and so he'll be a free agent. He won't be subject to... Uh, the uh, the posting system, so he won't require an additional fee to go to the uh, his current club or previous club, I guess. 
Uh, he'll just be a straight free agent, and he's a bigger name. Uh, I, I don't, again, I don't think he's the next super super duper star or anything, but he's been one that's been on teams' radar for a while now as as a potential mid rotation arm, I think. And so I'm gonna keep gonna be keeping an eye on that and his free agency for sure. Uh, he could be a cheaper alternative to a Degrom or Verlander, um, Gamble for sure, but one to keep an eye on. I don't think there's much else to add there. I just wanted to mention those two. Because uh, those might have gotten lost in some of the postseason news. Yeah, and you know, I don't think any team has nailed this problem yet of, you know, how to sort of determine how Asian stars translate to U.S. baseball. Some do, some don't. You know, Seiya Suzuki came on a little bit strong in the beginning, but sort of faded out. Like I mean, now, there's some questions about whether the Cubs overpaid for him. Obviously, Otani's a superstar, so the other end of the spectrum. Um, you know, Yoshi Tsutsuko didn't really make it. Akiyama didn't really make it with the Reds. There's a whole bunch of other guys who didn't make it. And so, and these were like successful players, you know, in Japan mostly. And so, like some do, some don't. So like how you measure that, what you base that on is, is I think a continuous question that hasn't been quite nailed down yet by the teams here. Yeah, it seems historically pitchers have had a better shot. Obviously, it's it's still not 100%. There's plenty of guys who haven't made it work you know, I don't. I don't want to say he hasn't made it work, but you say Kikuchi has been struggling. Um, I believe it's Hiro Sawamura, <laughs> Hiro something Sawamura uh, yeah. with the Red Sox. He had some struggles. Um, Shun Yamaguchi. Plenty of recent stories of pitchers not making it work, but it seems like on average they do a little bit better. And uh, a guy like Senga might be more in that. I don't. I don't know if you, I don't know and follow. Uh, international baseball closely enough to be able to say if he is more of a Masahiro Tanaka type than he is a Kikuchi. But like I said, he's just a name I've heard for the last handful of years as like, this is one of the next guys to watch. So maybe there's some options yeah. in there. A side note, I think the prospect evaluators, the public ones are sort of baffled by this too, because they tend to show up on prospect lists. And that's purely because you know, they haven't played, you know, American baseball. And so, you know, oftentimes you get like a 32-year-old who's a prospect, you know, and like, that's weird, first of all. Uh, But secondly, I think that's an attempt to try to measure them against a new player coming up to the system. Are they a 50 on the 2080 scale? Like, what are they? Like, what can you expect from them? And I think that's been very hit and miss as well. Yeah, definitely noticed that as well. Last bit of news, uh, the Giants have hired Pete Patilla as their general manager. Uh, so in the last episode, we mentioned that um, Scott Harris, uh, yeah, Scott Harris is his name, <laughs> previous GM of the Giants, uh, left to go run the show in Detroit with the Tigers. And so the Giants had a vacancy there for that spot directly underneath uh, Farhan Zaidi. And we also have been hearing some rumors uh, that the Astros might be looking to kind of clean house after the season. And... Don't know if Dusty Baker's coming back. His contract is expiring. You know, he gets rave reports from the players. Everybody loves him, but maybe he's not as analytically inclined as uh, the Astros front office would like. But we've also heard some, some. I believe it's James Click, or is it James Glick? One of the two. Click, <laughs> um, yeah, Click. Yes. Sorry, I'm. I'm I, I think I'm pretty good with the player names, but I'm still shaky on the front office names. There's so many of them, and they're moving all over the place. Um, but Click, uh, there's been some reports that he might be on thin ice as well. And it seemed like part of that was that the Astros thought very highly of Pete Patilla, and he was a big part of building this impressive organization that they have. 
Uh, but he's been poached, and he's going to go join the Giants. And, you know, it's it's one of those cases of the Astros' loss is the Giants' gain. He's very clearly a smart and respected baseball mind and starting to work his way up. And it's not a bad spot for him at all. Um, but it just kind of leads to few more questions in Houston, which is a bit odd considering how well things have gone on the field for them. They're still one of, if not the, American League powerhouse. Uh, but it seems like they're headed for some turnover this offseason. Yeah, I mean, the the rumor is that James Click doesn't get along well with the owner, um, or maybe they've had some communication issues. I'm not sure what. I'm not going to speculate. Um, but that would make sense, given that, you know, here we have a successful team who, by the way, may be one of the favorites to win the World Series after it's all said and done. And so it'd be weird. To, to try to clean house when the team is so successful. So there must be some other reason. There must be something else going on. And so those rumors of, you know, perhaps clashes of personality may or communication style or what have you would seem to make some sense in the alternative. Um, you know, um, I hope for Dusty's sake that he gets the ring he's always wanted. Um, but um, I got to say, yeah, Patilla's doing an amazing job by all accounts from what I've heard. You just look at the picture development of that organization. It's been astounding. You know, Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia, and Kristen Javier, and these guys that sort of, I don't want to say came out of nowhere, um, but they weren't highly regarded. They didn't sign any strong bonuses. The Astros just figured them out. They just developed them really well. And now they're, they're just like, you know, and sometimes the public doesn't even realize it. They're like, because they're not the biggest names. They're like, okay, who's that guy? Framber Valdez? And he's been really good for several years now. And, and despite playing on a high-profile team, like, he's not a household name. Like, and yet, he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. So, like, go figure. Like, they, they just keep bumping these guys out. And you got to give some, I don't know to, if, to what degree Patilla is responsible for that. But, um you know, I just want to say their development has been top-notch. Uh, Pena, who started at shortstop this year, has had a really good year. Um, they've been able to plug and play, you know, when you know a guy like Correa leaves, they got Pena coming in behind him. And so that's a mark of a really good organization. It's, very, it's somewhat similar to the Dodgers in that they, they keep kind of next man up, and, you know, along the way. So, And, you know, it sounds like Patillo may have had some hand in that. So good for him for uh, finding his next way. I will say also that, you know... Um, the Astros' structure is a little bit different. Now, most of the teams now have this kind of two-person structure with, like, the president of baseball operations as the one and the GM now as the number two, whereas the Astros don't seem to have that. Patilla was an assistant GM, which is why this is a promotion for him. Um, but he'll largely do the kind of the day-to-day -day work while, while Zaidi takes the kind of the higher-level strategic work in San Francisco. Uh, anyway, very interesting turn of events. Yeah, for sure. And if if click is out we're not talking about like like we discussed with the tigers you know it has to be kind of a specific candidate for the job and you know it's not just hey we're gonna go get the next superstar gm we're not bringing david stearns in we got it it's a very specific person that would take that tigers job uh different story for the astros it's it's going to be one of the most desirable jobs available if not the most desirable job available if, if click does go and you could see them yeah. kind of take their pick of some of these big profile guys maybe they do get to lure uh, there, there's some question marks about dave stearns and his uh his current contract with the brewers i don't know if there's if it's public knowledge necessarily if he has an option for this upcoming season or right. not and mm -hmm. what kind of an option that is 
uh, but there's speculation about him going to the Mets that that uh, Steve Cohen's had his eye on him for a while, and he's a he's a very well respected baseball mind. Uh, was he was he previously with with Houston? Am I remembering that? Stearns, yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. So maybe there's some incentive for a reunion there. I don't know. Heavily heavy speculation on my part, but just to say that it's going to be a well sought after job for sure. Yeah, if it's open. Yeah. You know, one last point about Click is that he was kind of hired in a rush. You know, after the whole controversy. Um, you know, with the cheating scandal and everything else. And, you know, they needed a GM pretty quickly uh, to kind of step in and fill the void because they had stuff to do, you know. And uh, and so they grabbed him from the Rays. I don't know that there was a, you know, league-wide search that was that extensive because they needed to just plug a hole fast. And so maybe they think, oh, we probably should have done more. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure he's been good at his job. Um, but I do know that that was kind of a, a quick hire. Yeah, that's a very good point. Last thing I want to add here is you mentioned Javier and Valdez and Garcia and yeah, what they've managed to do with those guys. I think I think all three of them, and if not two of the three at least, signed for less than six figures as a signing bonus, which is just right. unheard of to have three uh. of those type of guys boom for you at the and be massive contributors at the big league level. But Valdez is going to get a bunch of Cy Young votes this year. He was excellent. Um, He's always excellent. not only not only to give them credit there, but also on the other end of the spectrum, they offered or they, they signed Justin Verlander to a pretty big contract coming into this year. And it seemed like kind of a question mark, you know, there's not much data to suggest that would be a good idea. Giving a guy coming off Tommy John that late in his career, a, a lengthy guarantee. And I believe it had a player option as well. So if he just fell apart, they were going to be in the hole for another 25 or 30 million next year. Uh, don't know, don't have the exact value pulled up, but it was going to be a lot of money that they would be in the tank for next year. Uh, but that's worked out perfectly for them. You know, Verlander was excellent. He's also going to get some Cy Young votes. So there, it's just an organization that operates at nearly a hundred percent from top to bottom. And, and that's part, what, part of what makes it so odd that they are potentially experiencing some turnover here. But as you mentioned, seems like it might just be kind of a relationship and not getting along within the organization type thing. All I can figure. All right. So that's all the news. Um, I have a couple other things to talk about today. Uh, first, let's discuss the latest value updates. And these are the end of season updates using, you know, the full season numbers now that season has ended. Uh, so those updates have been pushed again, shouldn't be any major changes from that specifically it should just be kind of movement on the margins here. Um, some players who debuted late might've seen a bit of a swing. We, we tried to mitigate that as best as we could, but if, if they just graduated into the big leagues and they had a hot month in September, uh, that'll, that'll sway things a little bit. Uh, but beyond that shouldn't be too much. However, we also did just a couple days after that, get the arbitration projections from MLB trade rumors from Matt Swartz. I, it's I say that every year. It's not from MLB Trade Rumors. It's from Matt Swartz, who contributes to MLB Trade Rumors and provides them with his uh, the results of his model of arbitration projections, which uh, they're not the Bible. They're not the law. They're not perfect every year, but they do a pretty good job. They're a pretty good estimate, and it's a safe jumping off point for what we're doing. And so implementing those updated arbitration estimates as opposed to our kind of back-of-the-napkin uh easy math projections that we have in our system it it changed the values a little bit for a handful of guys and so we have a list here uh, before i get into the list i want to 
John, let you go ahead and add anything else that I might have missed there that you want to say, and then we can so, start looking at some of these guys who changed the most. Yeah, so the first point I want to make is, so we were updating, so after the trade deadline, um, we updated kind of three more times, uh, one at about the 70% mark of the season, and then around the 85% mark, and now at the 100% mark. Now, <clears throat> so there's two big sort of things that move the needle a little bit in each one of those intervals. One is the performance data, like somebody may have, um, you know, gotten hot, you know, and, and so that might have changed their, their numbers a little bit. The second one is weightings. So we are um, weighting, in a full year basis, we're weighting the most recent year more than the previous years, right? We're not seeing an average of the last three years. We're weighting the, the most recent one. And so the more time goes on, the more the recent numbers take more precedent over the previous year's numbers. So there's kind of a twofold effect happening. You're got, you get like, you know, if a guy gets hot, that hotness is going to show up in the interval that we just did. But also the weighting is going to carry, it's going to elevate that number a little bit more still. So that's kind of a twofold sort of change. Um, so at each one of these intervals, you'll start to see that happening. And so some guys, you know, at the 100% mark might have gotten hot between the 85% mark and the 100% mark and say, oh, okay, he went up. But also his weighting is now weighting that sort of last bit as well, a little bit more. So, so that's a change. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, the way we sort of calculate um, arbitration years is, you know, we, we follow sort of the rubric that um, the first year is about 25% of market uh, value. The second year is about 40% of market value. And the last year is about 30 years, about 60% of market value. Now, those are estimates. Those are relatively rough estimates. One key difference is that the model that we use for data is different than the ones in arbitration. And so we're using more advanced metrics that, that front offices tend to use. Whereas arbitration is very old school. It uses, you know, back of the back of the baseball card stuff like RBIs and batting average or wins for a pitcher or ERA. We're not using any of that stuff. And so there's sometimes going to be a discrepancy between, you know, the advanced metrics that we're using that says this is what this player should get in arbitration versus what they actually do get because the old school different differs from the new school if you follow me. And so what uh, Matt Swartz is doing is he's got a model that sort of understands sort of the old school thinking of the arbitration system and says, okay, given the home runs and RBIs, and given the wins in the ERA, this is probably what this guy's going to make. And that's going to be slightly different than the advanced metrics that our model might show. So that's, that's the key. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for <laughs> that rundown. That That's a lot of information and it's all very good and very, accurate um going into the list here uh so so most of these uh numbers on the list are purely based on uh on the arbitration adjustments uh additionally a few of the players on here have multiple years of control remaining and so that kind of snowballs a little bit right where if we were off by a million in year one of arbitration that's not a huge deal, but if, if they have three or even four total years of arbitration that haven't been counted yet, that one million will kind of snowball into, into a further value. So uh, the I want to start at the bottom here, actually. And it's a player who I always kind of raise my eyebrows at when we're checking through on the updates. And like, hmm, it seems a little bit low, but then I take a look and it and it makes a lot of sense. 
And that's Pete Alonso. So he dropped 8.7 million. That's because he's getting a pretty favorable arbitration estimation. And he's he's a very good player, very good at what he does, but he's a little bit one-dimensional. You know, he's your prototypical power and drives runs in first baseman who doesn't do a whole lot else for you. And if you're not doing that at a truly elite level, like a Jordan Alvarez type of elite offensive level, then it's just going to be hard for you to produce much in, in terms of war and value. And on the flip side of it, he's the type of player that gets paid pretty handsomely in arbitration. Arbitration still cares a lot about home runs and RBIs and, and whatever. Yeah. So he's one where his value, you know, he's still a, a a valuable player on the field for sure his field value is fine that that hasn't changed but his salary is just catching up to him to that value number a lot quicker than it typically does for an arbitration player because of the type of player he is so that that's kind of all there is to that one yeah i think that's a great example of kind of difference between the old school and the new school because you know the old school model is going to favor him quite a bit um and so he, that's why he's getting a raise and that's why his surplus value is going down so, yeah, I mean, he's been pretty consistent. Uh, he had a pretty good year, but he's also a one-dimensional first baseman, not a great defensive first baseman, uh, mostly a power guy. He did hit 271, which is a little bit better for him as, you know, the previous year at 262, but he's not like a 300 hitter. Um, you know, he does get on base. He does hit for, you know, he hit 40 home runs. So, you know, um, he's an excellent player, obviously, um, but the number, but, but he's the type that arbitration will reward. So that surplus number is decreasing. Now he's only got two years of projection. Remember that when he first came up as a rookie, the Mets, you know, some, some teams game the system and wait till kind of a, a certain date has passed so they can kind of sneak out an extra year. They did not do that with him. They brought him up from day one out of spring training, which means he's been in the league for four years and only has two left. So, you know, maybe the Mets don't care, but they've only got two years left of him now. And those two years are getting expensive, which is why the surplus value is going down. Yep, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to kind of run through the list and you can stop me if you, you see anyone you want to talk about, or, or I'll stop for a couple of these guys for sure. Uh, Anthony Santander went down seven, and that's another one of those cases, multiple arbiers remaining. So a bit of an adjustment in the first one will kind of snowball. Yeah. And it's a similar case where the defense isn't great, so it's really just offensive value carrying him. Yeah. Uh, Josh Naylor, similar story. He also went down seven. Yeah. Jeff McNeil is a different case where he's already been through arbitration, and our future projections were based on that early arbitration value. Uh, but he had a massive year this year, and he's expected to get a big raise because of it. And so our kind of our estimated increases weren't in line with with what actually happened on the and, that, and so that's, that's because he won the batting title right yeah. so an arbitration committee is going to say oh you won the batting title you had the highest batting average we're going to reward you for that so whereas our numbers you know the expected debt is a little bit different than that exactly and so and even with that change he didn't we're not talking about a massive difference here he went no. down 5.9 million that's not a ton he's still yeah. very valuable yeah uh, Cal Quantrill, he went down 5.2. He had a pretty solid season as a starter. Uh, and it's another one of those cases where it's just multiple years of arbitration. So it's kind of trickling through. So yeah, minus but 5.2, but we're looking at like a couple million a year top. The stack cast, the stack cast numbers don't love Cal Quantrill, but I mean, the back of the baseball card does, but the advanced stats don't. So that's the difference there. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, Tyler Kinley went up 5.4. That's just kind of some reliever swing <laughs> weirdness. <laughs> yeah. um, but he did have a decent season. Uh, Eric Swanson up 5.8. Cedric Mullins up 5.8. So Michael just to King, comment oh, on that, the, yep. the, the relievers tend to be lower, right, in general. Relievers don't get paid a whole lot, right? So, you know, if a, if a reliever is having a pretty good year, our advanced numbers might say, hey, there's demand for that in the trade value market. Um, but arbitration doesn't typically reward relievers all that much. That's why you're going to see a swing. Especially non-closers. Yeah, exactly. And so and we, we don't, by the way, um, uh, we don't necessarily isolate or differentiate closers from non-closers. It shows up in our model one way or the other, but we're not saying, here's the closers, here's the non-closers. You know, saves are not an issue, and but in a, an arbitration uh, committee might. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Cedric Mullins, 5.8. Michael King, 6.9. That's the same thing there. Juan yeah. Soto, 7.8 is interesting. And I think that's largely a reaction to him having a quote unquote down year this season. And I mean, yeah, yeah you can call it a down year for Juan Soto standards, but he was still insane. So, so, uh, but what, what we're saying here is that his arbitration prediction for Matt Swartz was not as high as we thought it was going to be. That's the gap. That's all it is. And it's because he hasn't hit as many home runs or as high a batting average in previous years, which means the ARP committee is going to say, yeah, you don't give as much of a rage, even though some of his expected stats are just fine. So that's the discrepancy. Exactly. Uh, next up is Nestor Cortez and Ranger Suarez. I always I always get tripped up on if it's Ranger or Ron Hare. <laughs> um, but Nestor went up 8.4 and Suarez went up 9. And those are very similar cases where yeah. they've clearly established themselves as valuable starting pitchers. They just don't have the track record of that. You know, they both spent some time in the bullpen as well and, and didn't really come from much and maybe had a slower start to their career. And so arbitration system is a little bit slower to pay them because they don't necessarily have the saves of a closer. And that's something the arbitration old school system looks for. They also don't have the innings pitched in the wins of a, of a talented starter that they are. So they kind of get stuck in the middle there and don't quite get what they're deserved until they, you know, if, if either of these guys put up a full 30 start fantastic season in 2023, I think then they start to get paid closer to what they're worth and, and things start to line up a little bit. But for now they're lagging behind a bit. Yeah. Uh, Pete Fairbanks, another reliever, up 11. Jake Cronenworth at 16.6. Uh, he's derived a lot of value defensively. He's not a bad hitter by any means, but he has some defensive value, and so that doesn't always get paid accordingly in arbitration. Plus, it's just another one of these cases of multiple years of arbitration, so it snowballs. Exactly. So, in other words, arbitration is not going to reward him as much as we think he should be what we're really saying he's his surplus value is increased because his arbitration number is going to be lower than what we thought yep for sure and the last two i want to point out are logan webb and dylan cease uh webb went up 16.6 cease up 19.2 uh so so basically their arbitration values were significantly lower than we expected their arbitration yeah. estimates i should say yeah. um i'm looking Obviously at it here and i'm I'm kind of scratching my head a little bit because my initial thought was like, yeah, these guys both played for kind of mediocre teams in 2022. Maybe they just didn't rack up the wins and that's what arbitration cares a lot about, but they both did. Yeah. Webb won 15 games and Cease won 14. Cease was amazing. Webb, you know, he didn't miss as many bats as he had the last, uh, the, the previous season, but he still had a very good year. So I, I'm not exactly seeing why this why Swartz's system is a little lower on them. And and I, I do want to mention as well that we will go back and update 
the values and these values will change again once these arbitration hearings or contracts yeah. are actually agreed to. Well, we'll update with the actual values and these will change again. Yeah. So it's possible it's possible that the model was off that that Swartz's model was off on season web and they'll go right back where they just were. Uh, but it's it's interesting. I'm not sure what to make of those two. I agree because you would think those are, you know, what we're saying is we think they're in our model, which uses mostly expected sense They're, you know, you would think they would get a decent increase in arbitration. Swartz's model, which is based on more traditional stats, would say, no, they're not getting as much of an increase. And yet the tr traditional stats that we're looking at seem to be there. So I'm as puzzled as you are. What's going on there? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, there there's just a few very specific things you can look for in both, but nothing that's like in common between the two, you know, yeah, like yeah. with C's, you can say, okay, well, this was his only traditionally great season was 2022. He was worth, he was just as valuable as 2021 by F4, which is kind of impressive. 4.4 mm -hmm. wins both seasons um, just speaks to the, the decreased offensive environment this year compared to last year, I guess, because he had a 391 ERA in 2021. Uh, but much better peripherals, 365 XERA, 341 FIP, 372 XFIP, and, and, you know, arbitration doesn't care too much about those peripherals. Versus right. 2022, he had the 220 ERA, and his peripherals were still great, but 310 FIP, 350 XFIP didn't quite support that. Uh, so you could argue that just he doesn't have the track record and arbitration's not paying him as much because of that first year. But then you got Logan Webb, and you could say for Logan Webb, oh, it's because he didn't strike as many guys out this year. Even though he has two traditionally great seasons back-to-back, -back, he just didn't strike enough guys out, so that's why he's not getting paid. But then you have to look at Dylan Sees, and he struck out everybody, and he's also not getting paid, or, or not projected to get paid, I guess. So it's it's hard to find something in common that explains those two, and yeah, those are the two from the list I'm most keeping the closest eye on, and, and yeah. wouldn't be surprised to see fluctuate again. Yeah, same here, absolutely. Well, cool. That's it for that one. And now we can wrap up the episode. Uh, we got about a half hour left, but we'll wrap up by discussing the teams who have been eliminated from the postseason so far and just what they have to look forward to. Um, there's <laughs> so the, the four wildcard round teams, the Mets, Cardinals, Rays and Blue Jays. Uh, we discussed the Braves a bit earlier. Maybe we'll hit them further on, an, on another episode uh, when we discuss the division series teams. Uh, but for now, just those four wildcard elimination teams. And let's let's go ahead and take them in that order. Uh, let's start with the Mets, who they they kind of have their work cut out for them. So they're losing some really high-profile free agents. We mentioned before, um, Degrom is opting out. Uh, Edwin Diaz is a free agent. Brandon Nimmo. Those are three very big contributors for them. And they still have some gaps on the roster. You know, they were missing some offense. That's kind of what cost them in the in the wild card series and got them eliminated. Was they they're missing a bat or two? And it's not going to help by any means losing Nimmo. They had issues staying healthy in the rotation, and Scherzer's only getting older. They're losing DeGrom. They're losing Bassett. I believe they have an option on Carrasco, and if they decline it, they, they'd obviously lose him as well. And their bullpen had some question marks, and they're losing Diaz. So their weaknesses seem to be getting weaker. Meanwhile, everybody on that team is just getting more and more expensive, and there's Steve Cohen is filthy rich and he's willing to spend a whole lot of money on his baseball team, but there's got to be an upper limit somewhere. Yeah. Exactly. So they kind of have their work cut out for them. Luckily, they do have Francisco Alvarez, who's one of the best catching prospects in the game, and he made his major league debut at the end of the season. 
and he's the heir apparent at catcher, which is their weakest spot in the lineup by far. So he could be part of the solution there. Also part of the DH solution if you're not sold on his defense yet. Um, but beyond that, there's not a whole lot coming up through the minors, especially on the pitching side. It's kind of thin at the upper minors. You're looking at uh, at Vientos, Mark Vientos, and Brett Beatty once he gets healthy. Those can be part of an offensive solution as well. So maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable with the offense and you're you try to bring back Nemo, but if you can't, you just focus on the pitching. Maybe that's kind of their approach this offseason, but it seems like they have their work cut out for them. So their estimated payroll, according to Fangraphs, for 2022 was $282 million. Far and away the most expensive team in baseball. Far and away because Steve Cohen is very rich and didn't mind paying and blowing through the luxury tax limits. Um, but he had an interesting tweet you know, I saw a while ago that said, you would think I'm paraphrasing here. You would think like spending almost three hundred million dollars on baseball team would get you more than that, right? Should get you a championship is kind of what he was implying. And now with losing all these guys, he's still going to have an expensive because a lot of these guys are on big contracts. He's still going to have an expensive team in order to even just replacing them will get even more expensive. Now he's going to get into the three hundreds, but that's just trying to replace what he's just left. What he just had is already getting more expensive let alone any other improvements. Now, maybe you get a cheaper improvement from, you know, the catching spot, as you mentioned, from Alvarez. Uh, but, oh, by the way, they still owe James McCann over $24 million because <laughs> that was a bad overpay, and they backloaded it. So uh, that's not good. Um, and, you know, they've got money committed to other guys who are starting to show their age. Marte, starting Marte, doesn't seem to be all that healthy anymore. He's going to be making... 60-ish million dollars over the next three years. Even Max Scherzer, as great as he has been, you know, he's getting very old. He's 38. This will be 39 30, in 40 years, and he's getting paid $43 million, and he obviously got shelled in the playoff game, and he's he's been injured lately. So, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, how... So, the, yeah, the question is, what is Steve Cohen's upper bound, right? Because he doesn't have a whole lot, to your point, in the minors coming up to replace them. So he's going to have to spend his way out of this. So the question is, how much more is he going to spend? What is his upper limit? No one seems to know. Is he the new Steinbrenner? You know, we'll see. Like, would would the old school Jill, George Steinbrenner just keep on spending till the cows come home? Maybe Cohen will do that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but that's his only option, I think, at this point, if he wants to try to compete as, as much as he did this year in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's also an issue because yeah there's there's a limit to how much you can spend and they've clutched their prospects pretty hard uh, since he took over you know there haven't been any jared kelnick type trades not that that went too horribly for them but they've clutched their prospects and so alvarez isn't going anywhere Beatty isn't going anywhere those two they want to be part of the solution here and you're not gonna trade these cheap potentially very good young big leaguers just to get a more expensive proven one when you're trying to find a solution to a rising budget. That's, that's not how that's going to work. But after that, you're looking at, you know, Ronnie Mauricio, his stock has fallen a lot. He might be tough to trade. might be tough to find a team that's interested in him. Yeah. Mark Vientos is kind of iffy. Matt Allen's stock has dropped. Mm -hmm. And and above those guys, there is two names. There's, I think it's Kevin Parada at 26.1. And Alex yeah. Ramirez at 21.1. Parada was a draft pick last year, right? right? Exactly. Right? So he's so, probably not going anywhere. They're right. probably pretty high on him. 
Right. And Ramirez had a big breakout. And so that's the kind of guy you're, you're also might be, might be clutching. So they don't have any of those, right. as many of those traditional mid-tier guys where you feel okay trading them uh, because they're not a locked-in part of your long-term core, but also they have value to other teams and you can make a deal. They don't have many of those mid-range guys that you typically would trade from. So yeah. it's a tough spot. Yeah, I mean, and they traded JT Ginn to the A's for Chris Bassett uh, and a couple other sort of... Um, they throw white guys, but lesser lesser value guys. Um, so they didn't have much to trade. It was obvious that you know, you know that you, typically when you see the deadline, you know, to your point, you, they're trading not the elite guys at the top of their farm, but the guys sort of in that second tier who they think, yeah, they could live without them. They would like to keep them, but it's not a must-have to keep them. Uh, and other teams will still you know find them interesting. And then there's the tier below that, which gets a lot easier. Um, they don't have any, they don't, uh, Vientos and Mauricio are the two guys and both of them, you know, their stock has dropped. So we have both, I think in the high nines, so they're not going to get a whole lot of game changers from trading the, either of those two guys. Um, because everyone knows everything around the league. They know that those guys have question marks, so they're not going to pay a whole lot for them in, in trade value. So, and our numbers reflect that. So back to the point, Cohen's going to have to spend his way out of this. It's all there is to it. Yeah, and it's a matter of when you're working with as, you know, maybe there is no margin here. You know, maybe he's, it's a blank checkbook and, and they can spend $500 million and just, he just wants the World Series. Yeah. But that's not very likely. There's there's a limit somewhere, even if it feels like there isn't. And so they got to be really efficient and really smart with this money that they do have until that limit because there's not much margin for error. Okay, the next team, sticking in the National League, let's talk about the Cardinals. Um, they're the Cardinals are something else, man. They they just <laughs> can't lose. <laughs> they they can't figure out a way to be bad. They they like to live in this eighty five to ninety five win territory. I think they might have won a, a game or two more than that this past season. I, I don't have that pulled up, but they they never sell out their farm to become a superpower. A, a, but they never slump and, and rebuild, really. They never go all in on that and tank or anything. They're just always competitive. They're one of those teams. And this year was a lot more of the same. You know, They're, they're not going to have Albert Pujols finding the fountain of youth next season, but maybe on the flip side, they have a more productive catcher, and and they can put together a rotation that can hold hold for a full season and not have to rely on more of those midseason acquisitions for that. So... There's definitely reasons for optimism here. They've got a lot of talent left for sure, and a lot of young talent especially. So uh, we we saw that they were very involved in Juan Soto talks, which which tells you that if if there's a deal to be had, they're willing to give up some of these big names. You know, they have Jordan Walker, who's very valuable. Dylan Carlson, his stock is currently falling because he just hasn't really proven he's an impact performer in the big leagues. Uh, but he still has some time and he still has some value. Nolan Gorman, Lars Newbar came on strong late in the season. Brendan Donovan, same thing. Uh, Mason Wynn hasn't debuted yet, but he's a pretty highly regarded prospect. Uh, I think it's AJ Graceffo, Alec Burleson. They, they have a lot of impressive young talent. Tink Hentz. Um, there, there's a lot to work with here, and I don't think there's going to be room for all of these guys at the big league level. So they might yeah. have a, a trade or two in them here i know they haven't historically like i said they haven't historically traded these top top prospects but 
they might be in a spot to do so because their window is right now. Goldie and Arenado aren't going to get any younger, and they're only going to decline from here. They just had incredible seasons, both of them. So they probably need to make some moves to to bolster that pitching staff, maybe get a bat. And they're a team that, again, can't do it all with money. So it's time to move a couple of these guys. I think we'll see that. I, w- I think so, too. I think they've got to address their, their pitching, which has been held together with, you know, duct tape and sticks and <laughs> band-aids and yeah Adam Wainwright was 42 you know like that's you know they need a, a solid rotation core which they don't quite have you know Dakota Hudson's always injured and you know Wainwright's old and you know Liberatory um, who's been one of their top 50 prospects you know I've been starting to wonder about him because they kind of gave him a shot but he didn't really do much and other you get the sense that his stock has dropped, and I think that's reflective in our in our model as well. Like, there's something I'm not quite sold on with him as kind of a few, you know, it doesn't seem like he's an ace. Maybe he's a sort of middle or back-end starter at best. And so I think you've got maybe some needs around your pitching. Um, I think the offense is in better shape. You've got uh, Goldie and Arenado, who are probably good for a couple more years, although they're both obviously getting long in the tooth. Um Yvonne Herrera has to take that catching job uh, because Nisner's a backup. It's it's clear. So Yvonne Herrera has been one of the top prospects. We'll see if he actually does seize it, but it's his to lose. Um, I think Carlson will be fine. He's just a, you know, he's a sixth or seventh hole hitter that plays decent defense. Just one of these guys that's solid to our player, but he's not a star. I think that's okay. And he's got a lot of surplus value because of that. He's got a lot of years of control. Um, his stock has fallen because he was a, a higher prospect. And he's quite lived up to that, but he's okay as a two war player, right? You know, that's the, you know, bread and butter of the league. <clears throat> so then you've got, you know, where do you play Nolan Gorman? They've tried to play him at second, but he's not a second baseman. He doesn't have a uh, place at third. I think he's trade bait, um, especially now with Jordan Walker coming up, who is also a third baseman and or a first baseman who was also blocked. This is why, they made some sense as a as a Soto target because they could have traded those guys without too much pain, um, but they decided not to. They didn't quite get over the hump with that trade offer. Um, I understand Jordan Walker has been playing more in the field, probably left field, and so if they can get that out of him, then they can find a position for him there. Uh, so they can make it work. That's probably going to. I see it as kind of a, they'll trade a couple of prospects, maybe Burleson, you know, uh, maybe Gorman. Um, and they see if they can get any ticker uh, for, I don't know, Gordon Graceffo, maybe, or T. Kentz, or one of those younger pitchers. Uh, maybe Mason Wynn. Well, no, I think they keep one of them. I think Mason Wynn they like a lot because they probably need him as kind of the next generation shortstop. But they could probably trade Gorman, and they could probably trade like Burleson and get some good pitching back. And uh, so something like that. And they could probably also be active in the free agent market. They're always kind of active on both fronts. So I don't think this coming off season will be any different for them in that front. I think they'll make a couple of good trade acquisitions and a couple of good free agent acquisitions. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, obviously it's, it's early on. We haven't really gotten a grasp of what the market looks like and what teams look like, who's going to be selling and, and yeah. that kind of question. Off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of any big pitching targets that could pull in a in a big blockbuster unless you know maybe the tigers tear down and they can move school and, and i don't think he's costing mm. you all of those prospects but he's gonna uh. he'll cost something but other than him i'm not really coming up with much off the top of my head as far as impact 
pitching that can be had via trade and there's always surprises you know maybe the marlins pull the plug yeah. and yeah. and make pablo lopez available maybe the d-backs i don't think they will but maybe they'll betray their fan base again and trade zach allen <laughs> um so, so there, there might be some options there seems more likely they could go for another couple jordan montgomery types mid rotation yeah. arms and, and just give up a couple of those mid mid level prospects to get it done could see that for sure they could go bigger on catcher and go for sean murphy if they really wanted to don't think that's their priority but he's not the worst guy you could have replacing yadi if, if you really value the defense right. he's he's fantastic back there uh, but yeah, yeah I well, think you summed it up really well. They have a lot of different directions they could go. They'll have some money coming off the books with Pujols and Molina going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's hard not to like the spot they're in right now. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously a very well-run organization. They they kind of keep themselves competitive year to year with sustainability in mind. And they have a huge fan base to draw from as well. So they have that kind of as a cushion, which allows them to spend money when they need to. So it's a it's a good organization, and so they'll solve those problems. No, I think they'll just be another ninety win team next year. Yep, I'm hundred percent with you. I wonder. This is out of nowhere, and it just popped into my mind. Uh, do you think the the Brewers could start tearing some stuff down? I <laughs> do. do. You think, do you think Burns I, I and think Woodruff I, could be available? That's I do. I do think the, um, you know. David Stern's comments in a in a postseason press conference were sort of intriguing. Like I think he said, I can't remember what exact words were, but I think he left the door open to a teardown. If you're reading the tea leaves of what he was saying, like I now they're a smaller market team, and they're kind of stuck, right? And there are certain parts of that team that are sort of falling apart, and certain parts that aren't. And so you you start to that's where you start to wonder maybe they should just acknowledge reality and say, okay, this is re- we're not going to solve this with a whole bunch of money because we're a small market team. Maybe our best bet is to kind of trade the big assets that we have, rebuild, because we're a small market team, and that's what you probably should do at this point. It's kind of an inflection point for them. Yeah, they've got like 15 arbitration-eligible guys. they got a ton this upcoming year, and a couple of them are those big names, Burns and Woodruff and Willie Adames and, and a couple other guys, plus they got holes all over the field and Christian Yelich yeah. is yeah. Been really disappointing and he's eaten up a lot of their smaller budget. So yeah, yeah, I, I hate to see it cause they've been such a fun, weird team and I really like a lot of those players. <laughs> so I'd hate to see them tear it down, but I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's on the table, you know, they could capitalize on what looks like it'll be a buyer's market this off season. Cause the A's don't have much of anybody left to trade. The, the Reds don't, the, the Rockies refused to do so, <laughs> you know, there's it, with the expanded playoffs, we really are seeing more teams at least kind of trying. <laughs> and that just means less teams are available to trade guys away. So I wonder yeah. if they could kind of see an opportunity and fill that gap. I mean, look, that lineup is terrible. <laughs> you know, Adamas is probably the most productive player offensively in that lineup. Um, Yelich is, is, has been a disappointment. You know, Ravi Glez is just, you know, his you know, he does his thing, but it's it's not a whole lot. Hunter Renfro may be a maybe a non tender because he's getting too expensive. Colt Wong, uh, he really dropped off. Andrew McCutcheon is done. Jace Peterson isn't much. He's in the seventh hole. He's kind of a fourth outfield type, or you know, utility type. Omar Navias is sort of in decline. 
They do have a couple of prospects. Garrett Mitchell, they got a they give a shot to. He didn't do a whole lot. Um, now I will say they have one of the best prospects in baseball, Jackson Chorio, who at 18 years old, I think maybe 19 now, has just been lighting up everybody's you know prospect boards. He's been amazing. He's like he could be the next superstar, um, but he's a, a, he's a kid. He's several years away. So maybe you think, okay, let's build for Jackson Churio's window. He's going to come up in maybe two years and be our next Julio Rodriguez or, you know, whoever. And, you know, maybe he's a superstar and you build around him. So if you start to say, let's let's bite the bullet and rebuild, you know, who's going to be here in two years? They signed Aaron Ashby to a longer-term contract, so maybe he's there. But maybe you trade Burns and Peralta while their value is still relatively high. Uh, Peralta is on this ridiculously team-friendly contract. I know he's been hurt, uh, but he's making, what, $5 million a year or so? Like, you can easily afford to keep him around. He's got several years there. So you've got a couple of potential players on the, in the rotation, Ashby and Peralta. So even if you trade Burns and Woodruff for younger talent um, to kind of short, start to, you know, build for the future, I think that's probably a better direction for them, to be honest. They've also got a couple other prospects like Terang and uh, I know I'm forgetting a couple others. Uh, recent draft picks. South Relic. Yeah, South Relic. Um, I think that's I think that's their direction. I'm sorry to say, Milwaukee fans, but I think you're rebuilding. Yeah, I I don't mind that call either. That that's a really good point all around and building around Chorio. Um, Keston here is interesting because he's always going to be intriguing. He's not, I don't think he's great. He doesn't have a position, but he can hit, it looks like. He had a really weird offensive season, and he didn't get consistent playing time. But that's the type of guy you, you know, if, if you're trying to contend, you can't give consistent playing time to. But if you're rebuilding, why not? They, they can give him a shot. Um, or he one... can just, you know, I can see him for some reason on the race. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> and he doesn't have any trade value right now, or very little yeah. anyway. He could hit a little bit, but he's out of options, and he doesn't have position. He's just kind of one-dimensional. But I could see the Rays being mm-hmm. interested in a guy like that. Definitely not the worst call. I, I could see yeah. it for sure. Uh, and one last correction before we transition to the Rays. Uh, Garrett, Mil- Garrett Mitchell was actually fantastic for them down the stretch. <laughs> he had a, oh, a okay. 136 WRC+, plus, put up a win in 68 plate appearances. Good for him. So, yeah. yeah, he might be a all part right. of the future as well. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, we actually we ended up slipping in a fifth team there, talking a little Brewers. But uh, let's go Rays next. I don't know how deep we can get here because the answer for the Rays is always they got a lot of talent, they got a low budget, they're going to move some pieces around and make it work. And that's just kind of how it is for them. You know, it's uh, I was pretty adamantly in the camp that they should have and, and would not not necessarily as much as they should have, but that I really expected them to trade Tyler Glass now, either last offseason or maybe even at the deadline. And they didn't. They held on to him, and he actually made it back in time for the playoffs, and he was fantastic in his, I think, five innings uh, that he pitched yeah. since he wasn't built back up yet. Uh, but it's huge to, to even just get him that showing at the end of the year, and, and hopefully he can ride that momentum into next year. He's got two years left cause since they signed him to that uh, weird extension. Uh, but he got two years left, and he's a fantastic pitcher. Adding him to Shane McClanahan and Drew Rasmussen at the top of that rotation is going to be scary. And that's not to mention Taj Bradley is a really highly regarded pitching prospect. He has some helium. Uh, they're losing Kluber, but and they're losing, I think, Michael Waka. Was he on the Rays, or did he go to the Red no, Sox? No, he was on the I've Red been losing, Sox. Okay, yeah. I've been losing track of which team he, he's yeah. on. Waka's on a different team every year. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but I mean, that's a even losing Kluber, they could either bring him back or they'll probably instead grab the next Kluber because that's how they operate. And, and the next reclamation prospect that's going to be a three win pitcher for them. So rotation's pretty set. They can, they can, excuse me, they can finish out the, at the end of it there. And, you know, they might be cutting Ryan Yarbrough. It might be time to call it on him, but yeah. constant turn in their rotation in their pitching staff anyway. So no issues there. They got a ton of awesome. Oh, I didn't even mention Jeffrey Springs who transitioned in the rotation. Yeah. Was very good. Holy uh-huh. mackerel. They, found they just have there. a, yeah, and they have a pretty loaded bullpen. Uh, there's been some injuries down there, but JP Fire Eisen has been excellent. Uh, Pete Fairbanks, I mentioned earlier, he's great. A uh, handful of other names there. That's another spot of just constant churn. They could use a bat or two, and part of that is just getting guys healthy. You know, uh, Wander Franco was not healthy at all last year. He was pretty good when he was on the field, but not healthy and not quite at the level that they want him at, not quite at the level he was at in 2021. Uh, so he's a big piece there. Uh, but yeah, they, they got a lot up and down the lineup. I could see them trading Brandon Lau. That seems like it's, you know, it's it's in their future. He's making some guaranteed money, and that's never a safe spot to be in when you're on the raise is, is making money and nearing the age of 30. That's a bit rough. Um, but yeah, they got a lot of options because they're the Rays and they just have talent at every position at every level of the minors. So they can do a lot of different things, make some trades, make a couple bargain free agent acquisitions, and they're going to be right in the thick of it again next year. That's just how they operate. Yeah. And the other thing that everyone knows now about how they operate is once guys start getting expensive into their herb years, they're gone. That's that's who they trade for younger versions of them. And then they could continually replenish their farm that way. So trade value for guys who start to establish themselves typically peaks when they've got like four years of control or sometimes three years of control when they're just about to hit arbitration. That's the sweet spot for them. And so if you look at it that way, I guess who's starting to go into that sweet spot? Randy Rosarina. People starting to wonder, is it time to trade Randy? The other the other sort of thing about the race is they're very right-handed heavy and they were um, – disappointing in their offense against right-handed pitching. So in other words, they need lefties. They need lefty hitters. Brandon Lau, uh, I'll make a counterpoint to your your point. Um, he's been injured, but he's a left, a strong lefty bat in a lineup that needs a strong lefty bat. So they might want to keep him. He does have cost certainty, but they can probably afford that given their low budget. Um, they've been disappointed by, you know, like Taylor Walls, good defensively, but hasn't hit at all. Um, you know, they disappointed by like Francisco Mejia hasn't really seized the opportunity to be their starting catcher. Um, so I think they need um, a catcher, definitely, because I don't think they have a replacement coming in in-house. And I do think they have some pieces to trade. Uh, Liddell Bruhan hasn't seemed to find a place, and his stock has dropped because he's been pretty terrible at the major league level. Um, Jonathan Aranda, who they brought up as kind of a corner guy, mostly first base guy, has some power, still has some trade value, um, but maybe an expendable uh, uh, type of guy. On the other hand, he's a lefty hitter, so maybe they want to keep him. They've got a a number of ways they can go. Um, I do think they need another sort of proven rotation arm, so I think they might look to the free agent market to grab another, you know, Kluber type, who they still think maybe has some life left. Uh, that they can kind of grab at a bargain price, and uh, they tend to do that as well. So something like remember they tried they signed Charlie Morton a couple of years ago. So maybe there's another one of those guys out there that they can they can kind of spend a little bit of money on to kind of shore up their rotation. I can see them doing that. 
Yeah, it's not a bad call with Lau and the left-handed hitting issue yeah. because you know you, Kevin Kiermaier's gone. They're, they're, yeah. I don't think they're going to bring him back. Uh, they brought in Jose Siri, and they really like him out there in center. He's got a great glove and he's got some potential at the plate. It seems so. I think he's going to be their center fielder. Uh, they also cut Brett Phillips last year. Or, or, yeah, I think they cut him and then traded yeah. him to the Orioles. Um, so those two guys, those two left-handed outfield options are gone. And you mentioned some of the issues that some of their prospects have had, switch hitters, Vidal Brujan in particular, but Xavier Edwards is also just looking like kind of a bench guy. And so that's not a guy you can expect to contribute from the left side at, at second base to help replace Lau. So uh, Choi, Jimon Choi, I don't know if he's a free agent or if we just have him as a non-tender candidate, but either way, he's at that age where that age and that level of production and that level of salary that it doesn't make sense for the Rays to keep him anymore. Yeah. Uh, He's got one year left, but he's their quintessential, you know, guy who's getting too expensive for Mm -hmm. relative to his production. So maybe a a non-tender. Yeah. So I'd expect them to pick up, you know, one of them, 110 120 wrc plus doesn't do anything else left-handed hitting first base types on the free agent or or even the lower end trade market and and have them keep the seat warm for kyle manzardo who has been just he he wasn't really much of a prospect he was he was a second round pick but he wasn't a big name or anything uh but he's destroying the minor leagues and he looks like their first baseman of the future and he's a big left-handed bat and he will probably be ready at some point next season if he keeps this up uh, so they could just get kind of a stopgap there. The one other position, though, and, and I'm going to bring up Sean Murphy again, because mm-hmm. they don't have anything at catcher. You mentioned Francisco Mejia hasn't grabbed that role, and behind him there's nothing. They mm-hmm. are losing Kyle, uh, Kyle. Mike Zunino. <laughs> Mixed him with Kyle Seeger for a second there. Uh, they're losing Mike Zunino. They could go ahead and bring him back. It seems like they like him. He He has a great glove behind the plate, obviously, and you're able to look past the offensive warts because he'll, he'll run into a few homers. He'll take a few walks and he'll throw out a ton of runners and frame a lot of pitches. And that checks off all the boxes for the race. So maybe they bring him back. That's the solution there. But if not, then they just have a massive hole at catcher and they have some prospect capital. So maybe Murphy makes sense and he'll be affordable for them. Uh, That is just another right-handed bat, but so is Zanino. You can't get too picky at catcher. There's just not too many good options out there. Yeah, um, but yeah, they, they. I think it just goes back to they have a lot of options here. I wouldn't be surprised to see them move Lau, but as you mentioned, that would leave them extremely right-handed heavy. So I, I think that's a decent call that they might hang on to him, even even if everything else lines up and makes him look like a trade candidate. Uh, but I I wasn't thinking of a Rosarena, but that's not a bad call if you can move him to. to address another position or two yeah yeah i mean he's a right-handed hitter and he's been obviously he made a name for himself a couple years ago in the world series but he's been kind of you know streaky you know and a little bit inconsistent and he's had his you know his ups and downs um he's still very valuable and but you know the rays are the type of team that is not afraid to pull the trigger on virtually any player so it's not like they'd be afraid to trade him if they got a good enough prospect back um Going the other way, to your point, um, I think a trade for Sean Murphy makes a lot of sense because they do need to shore up that catcher position. I'm sure they would, you know, his arbitration estimate number came in low, so he's not going to cost them much in salary. He's got three years of control, and the A's have, you know, a surplus at catcher, so they'd be willing to move him. And the Rays are the ideal partner for them because they have so so much prospect capital that, you know, wouldn't really 
put much of a dent in their in their farm. So that one seems to be a real nice fit from both sides. Yeah, I, I think maybe the one thing holding that back is that if we do get the automated zone in the next couple of years, then maybe value value wise, you know, Sean Murphy's an excellent framer and that's a chunk of his defensive value. And so maybe you don't want to pay for that if you're worried that you lose that in the next couple of years. But also yeah. I don't think we've seen many teams acting, uh, playing afraid of uh, with any of these potential rule changes. We didn't see teams shying away from lefty pole hitters, or I, I guess I have that backwards. Uh, we didn't see teams starting to prioritize lefty pole hitters the last couple of years because the shift might get banned. I, I think it's teams are all wait and see. You're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna make moves thinking of what the rules might be in three or four years. You know, especially right. because there we might have kind of a review system. It might just not just be a fully automated zone. It might be, hey, you get three ball and strike review challenges a, a game or something like that. So in that case, framing would remain very important. Um, but yeah, one one last note on Randy Rosarena. Um, he, on the one hand, he seems like a very raised player because you know he they got him for nothing and he's become a star. On the other hand, he's not a very raised player, and I was thinking about it in the postseason that. They were showing his stolen base numbers, and he stole 32 bases this year. I think it was near the top of the league, if not at the top. And he stole 20 bases last year, but he gets caught stealing a lot, and that's just not. That's that. That seems like something that you know. I don't know. The Phillies would do is they'd get a, a fast guy and just let him steal bases whenever he wanted, even though it wasn't efficient. It wasn't actually adding value because he's getting thrown out more than that. You know, 70 whatever, 75, 80 percent success rate that you need for it to be a, a plus value add. But he got thrown out 12 times this year and 10 times last year, and that's that seems like that's not quite something the forward thinking Rays would support and approve. And if that's just kind of the style of player he is, if he wants to be an aggressive base runner, um, then maybe he's just not the best fit for the organization. Yeah. Yeah. You can see some, some, you know, red flags or at least yellow flags in his profile that may not totally sync with the team strategy. So yeah, I, I think it's a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to give a quick update here. It's the bottom of the 13th in Seattle, and we're still scoreless. Good Lord. <laughs> All, All right. right. Let's wrap this Let's... up so we can go watch that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, apologies if any of that's coming through the mic, but there's the storm I was warning John about. It oh, just no. started pouring here, so let's uh... – All right, let's get this in before my power goes out also. Okay. <laughs> All right, last team, Blue Jays. Wow, were they kind of disappointing this year. <laughs> They came into spring training with how, oh, last year was the trailer, this one's the movie, and then they just made the wild card again and, and really were <laughs> never anywhere close to the uh, to the division title. Um, still a fun, exciting, talented young team. Alec Manoa is excellent. Bo Bichette, he had kind of an iffy year, and then he came on real hot down the stretch, and now he's looking like a star again. Uh, Gabriel Moreno hasn't really gotten his opportunity yet, but he's a big prospect. Alejandro Kirk is excellent. Kevin Gosman, his he really outperformed, uh, or I guess underperformed his numbers. His FIP was much better than his ERA, and so he looks like he still looks like the same frontline starter that he was when they signed him. Uh, but you just keep going down the list. There's so much talent at so many different positions. Matt Chapman, you know, he just had a typical Matt Chapman, like four win season for them with a slightly above average bat and excellent defense. Santiago Espinal as a contributor for them now. George Springer, he's had some injury issues, but he's still been a fantastic ball player when he's on the field. 
And they've even added a decent bullpen, which has been kind of a weakness for them in the past. You know, they traded for Zach Pop and Anthony Bass at the deadline. Uh, Jordan Romano is one of the best relievers in the game now. He's their closer. So it's hard not to like what they have at the big league level. They're getting a little bit thin in the minors. Uh, Moreno was really their last big prospect, and he's, at least by our model, he's graduated. I don't know if he's officially graduated by the typical prospect models. Um, but in our model, he's graduated, and so his clock is starting to tick now. Ricky Tiedemann is really exciting, a decent pitching prospect for them. But after that, it's a whole lot of question marks, and we're getting kind of into that Mets territory with the budget's been slowly climbing up, and it's not looking like it's getting lower anytime soon, but they also don't really have the trade capital to address any of their needs. So they're in that kind of iffy spot as well, and they don't have the luxury of a Steve Cohen to just open up the checkbook if they really need him to. They they have to work within their budget, and they're going to have an interesting time doing so, I think. Yeah, so keep in mind they're owned by the Rogers Corporation, so much like the Atlanta Braves. You know, they don't have just like one order, one owner they can go to and say, yeah, I'll write you a check. He's uh, I mean, they they have to go through like corporate stuff, you know, corporate budgets and, and all of that, which is a little bit harder to navigate. But it means they have some money, but it's not as easy to your point to just like open the checkbook. Um, uh, you know, my gut says they're going to just sort of roll it back and try again next year with a few tweaks. Um, I think they do need a little bit of help in the, in the rotation. Jose Barrios was a massive disappointment this year after that big contract, the trade and the contract. They expected him to be a frontline starter. He was anything but. He was one of the worst starters in the league. I don't know what happened there, but um, that's... So that's created a hole. You basically just have Manoa and Gosman. And so when we were looking at them as a playoff contender, we were thinking, oh, it's Manoa and Gosman. And what? Who's their third starter? <laughs> you know, Stripling, who's just been a swing man all his career. And he's he's kind of getting older. And, and so, like, yeah, they, they need another starter. Um, you know, I think the offense is fine. They do have a surplus at catcher. So it's been long been rumored that they would trade one of their catchers, maybe Danny Jansen maybe even Moreno. It's weird that they brought him up and then didn't really have a place to play him uh, because they it was already taken by Alejandro Kirk, who finally showed the world he could, in fact, catch. He's not just a hitter. Um, Danny Jansen, who's been hurt here and there, uh, but he can hit as well as catch. Um, he's uh, a very interesting trade candidate, I think, for a lot of teams who need a catcher uh, because the Blue Jays might think, yeah, he's expendable. Um, so I can see them trading a piece like that um, for at least a, a starter who can be a number three starter type um, and or, you know, they'll have some budget. If if you say, OK, Manoa and Gosman are the top two in our rotation, then they don't need to splurge too much on an ace. They can get a number three starter type. They can get a Chris Bassett maybe in free agency or one of those types of guys for like 50 to 20 million. And they can afford that. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing I think they'll do and maybe get another reliever too. Like they're not going to like rebuild. They're, they're already there. They're already close. And maybe it was just bad luck. But I think just going to run it back with some tweaks. Yeah, I think the it's a great point to point out catcher. Something's got to give there. One of those guys has to move. And it's yeah. not Kirk. He's been phenomenal for them and he's taken some strides behind the plate. That was the main concern with him was, is he just going to be a DH? But I think they like him a lot more behind the plate now. And, and Jansen is also a fantastic defender and, and he's hitting when he's healthy. He's had some trouble staying on the field though. So maybe he's the guy I can yeah. see that for sure. I could see him for the Rays. That wouldn't be a horrible fit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but something's got to give there. And then the other spot I'm looking at is the corner outfield. 
where Lourdes Guriel is making a little bit of money and he's been kind of, eh, he's been just kind yeah. of a role player who's playing every day kind of thing. He doesn't defend the position well and he also isn't a good enough hitter to really make up for it. And I'm also looking at Teoscar Hernandez, who's been an offensive contributor for them for sure. He's been very good. They It was a very great trade to pick him up. Uh, but he's also kind of a, a rock defensively and yeah. he's starting to get up there in arbitration because he's one of those offense and, and RBI types. Also, it's his birthday. Happy birthday to Oscar Hernandez. Um, and, you know, it'll be hard to replace that offensive production in the lineup, but it's maybe one of those cases where if you move one or two of those guys, you can, you know, you can go grab a bargain free agent or, or get a guy coming back in a trade that can help fill some of that value, but also maybe that, that player is a better defender. And so you're maybe losing a little bit offensively, but you're picking it up on defense and saving a few million in the process. I could see one or both of those guys getting traded with that in mind. Yeah, those are good points. Um, you know, and that's probably why they traded for uh, Ramal Tapia, who, you know, let's be honest, is not any great checks. He's a fourth outfielder. Um, so, um, but it at least sent a signal that, you know, they were looking for something else to fill one of those corner slots. So, yeah, I can see them being in the market for something there. And they also picked up Jackie Bradley Jr. midseason. And I don't want to read too into that. That was purely just a depth move. And there was another, you know, mediocre glove first backup outfielder, I think, that they had on their roster a couple times. I'm blanking on who it was. Um, But there's a pretty clear emphasis there toward, you know, we want to keep Springer healthy he's really the only true center fielder on the roster. They need to have some sort of a a consistent backup for him to keep him off the turf every now and then and and keep him on the field because he's still a very good player, a very good hitter. And I think he's stuck in center field a lot longer than most people expected, but that comes with some wear and tear on his body. And he's, he only played 133 games this year and 78 last year. He's had trouble staying healthy basically his whole career, but it's only going to get worse as he ages. So they need some sort of a, they need an outfield solution. I feel pretty comfortable saying that. And if that comes at the cost of getting Hernandez to Oscar Hernandez's salary off the books, I think it's worth it. Um, he's not immensely valuable because his salary is starting to catch up to his field value. We have him in 8.4 in surplus. And then Guriel we have down at 5.6 just because he's, he's making a few million, but not too much. Um, but even just getting that bid off the books probably makes some other moves easier because there's a few guys getting arbitration raises that that'll kind of balance out. So, um, yeah, yeah I think that's my piece on the yeah. Blue Jays. Yeah, I mean, just one last point. I mean, they they do have a solid core, right? They got Bichette, they got Vladdy, they got Kirk, you know, they've got Springer. I mean, that's a solid core. They got Manoa. Gosman. So there's really, and then, you know, Jordan Romano is one of the top relievers as a closer out of the fence. So I don't think there's major changes in store here. I think they're okay. I think they just got to run it back and hopefully have better luck. And maybe, you know, Bobashek gets off to a, a, a hotter start than he did last year. Vlad could probably kick it up a notch as well. Um, Springer may be in decline, so you have to offset that decline a little bit. So maybe you bring in Moreno for more offense. You know, there's there's tweaks you can go and mix and match a little bit, but they're they're pretty close. And I think they just need a couple more pieces uh, to to get them over the top. I agree. All right, I think that's all I have. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add before we call it? No, I'm good. Sweet. Uh, this was a fun one. Went a little bit over, but uh, I'm okay with I'm okay with 12 minutes over, 13 minutes over to talk some good baseball and have some fun. 
Yep. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the postseason. The Mariners and Astros are still scoreless at the <laughs> bottom of the 13th. I'll be, I'll be logging off to watch that game. But uh, as far as the podcast goes, that'll be it. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.